Welcome to the SAS Mining Podcast. At SAS Mining, we are bringing you into conversations with today's industry leaders in blockchain and cryptocurrency. Our goal with this podcast is to improve the understanding and adoption of blockchain and cryptocurrency by giving you an insider's look at what's being built and informed predictions on what the future holds. William Samasegi is the CEO and founder of SAS Mining Inc. All opinions expressed by William or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of SAS Mining. You should not treat any opinion expressed by William as a specific recommendation to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Today's episode is sponsored by BlockFi and Cogent Law Group. Our listeners can visit BlockFi.com slash mining for an exclusive offer for cryptocurrency management. And check out Cogent Law Group for all your legal needs. Mason Jeppa is a graduate of Indiana University's Kelly School of Business, where he received a bachelor's in finance and a master's in information systems. He has worked in management consulting, information technology transformations, and as a solution engineer at Fusion Risk Management. Today, Mason is at Blockware Solutions. Welcome to the podcast, Mason. Hey, good to be on, William. Yeah, definitely. I uh, was going through everything that you've been doing with Blockware, and it's absolutely incredible, all the research that you guys are putting out all the work that you're doing in the space. You're not just in one country. You're, you have your footprint really in uh, many different countries around the world. Can you talk about your journey with the company and how you got involved with, in the space? Yeah, uh, so we've definitely done a lot of interesting things since, since we founded Blocker in 2017. Um, so my initial entrance in the space uh, started late 2015, early 2016. Um, I was actually... Um, interested in mining before I was interested in Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency in general. Um, so my, my, my family comes from a manufacturing industry, um, a wood manufacturing company my gra- grandfather started in the 1970s. So we had, you know, a warehouse space and some excess energy where I, where I wanted to put in servers. So then I started doing research about, you know, what servers I could put in there, um, whether it was, you know, hosting data or, or generating some type of revenue from that. And it kind of led me down the rabbit hole of, of finding uh, Bitcoin miners. Um, so I started purchasing those in early 2017. And I realized how hard it was to buy a machine from China. Um, you, you had to have, you know, thousands of dollars in currency. It's not so easy getting Bitcoin, especially back then, right? Um, so you have to get verified and, and be able to purchase the Bitcoin, which you send to a, an address to a Chinese company such as Bitmain. Uh, hope that it gets there and then hope that you hear back. And then, you know, lo and behold, two or three months later, your machines will show up. Um, so we saw an opportunity with fragmentation in the market. Um, and, and there was, there was a need of a middleman, um, that was trusted and transparent that could become a gateway for North American miners to purchase machines. Um, so after that took place, um, I called one of the smartest people I know, which was uh, my biz- my former business partner, Matt D'Souza. Um, unfortunately, he just passed away. I'm happy to discuss that, but um, got some big shoes to fill there. But he he actually had run a uh, a digital currency hedge fund that he launched in early 2017. So I thought he was the perfect partner, and we launched right at the right time. 
Um, it, was, it was in August 2017, right before the bull run that took place in late 2017, early 2018, when you saw Bitcoin, you know, rise from 5,000 to 20,000 um, in, in a matter of moments. And along the way, uh, machinery, which is correlated to the price of Bitcoin, was going up in price. So I saw these machines I bought from my personal farm, you know, appreciate in value, like sometimes even tenfold. Um, so it was very interesting. And, you know, we kind of caught that wave and, and we started the business just agreeing to have a, a base uh, premium price that we charge uh, our clients, you know, a base, you know, very fair, you know, to be five or 10% margin on the machine. And then, you know, we grew it from there and now we're, you know, in many um, different areas within blockchain, um, not just mining. And we have, you know, we're vertically integrated. I'm happy to go further into that. Yeah, definitely. Well, you, it seems like you guys kind of got your foot in the door uh, early on with the sourcing of equipment, and that's I'm kind of interested in talking through how you guys went about doing that. So I'm sure when you started, you're kind of in the same boat as of everyone else. You kind of see that there's a difficulty in getting equipment reliably and having uh, a partner in the U.S. that can that you can deal with more easily to transact and do business. So how did you kind of go from there to being the broker that all these other miners wanted to work through to actually get equipment? No, it's a great question. Um, and I think, you know, we had some cards stacked in our favor. Um, so first off, uh, back in the day, you know, Bitmain was the main, you know, manufacturer that everyone bought from. Um, and, and I look at the manufacturers back then and I viewed, you know, Bitmain as having a monopoly, right? They released the S9 in, in 2016 and there was really no other competitor with ASICs. Um, you know, they all said D3s, Melty Pluses, you know, all coin miners. Um, and interesting enough, they didn't accept USD wire. Um, so luckily for me, you know, I partnered with um, my, my colleague and business partner who ran a digital currency hedge fund. So we had the opportunity to get a hold of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of Bitcoin or Bitcoin cash that was required to pay for these equipment when, you know, retail buyers and even some, you know, institutional buyers couldn't get access to that amount of coin. And, and secondly, you have to realize when you're, when you're purchasing the mach these machines, um, it, it's during off hours. So for us, you know, we were young. I'm, I'm about to turn 30. So we were all like 26, 25 when, when we launched this. We would stay up all night and wait for these batch releases to come out. Um, so Bitmain would release batches at 4 a.m. We'd have, you know, a little late night party and stay up um, quickly. And at the time, we were able to um, take order order fills from our clients, collect in USD, and we'd have funds ready. And we'd quickly convert um, the amount of funds we required uh, to Bitcoin to pay for the machines, you know, even at 4 a.m., um, which you can do, of course, as you know. <laughs> and then we'd send that Bitcoin immediately over to Bitmain, pay for the machine. So you saw at the time there was, first off, um, timing issues with, with sourcing the equipment at a tangible hour. Secondly, um, you took on currency risk. So even if you could get Bitcoin in advance, you didn't know when they were going to release batches. And, and, you know, everyone knows the volatility of digital currency. You know, Bitcoin could, could have fallen from 8,000 to 6,000, you know, in one day while you're trying to use that money to buy machines, which is, you know, at a stable price at the time. Um, so, so that, that kind of evolved over time. And, and with that, the manufacturers evolved over time. So, um, now it's, it, you know, there's, there's really two main manufacturers, in my opinion, in the Bitcoin mining space, which is MicroBT, What's Miner, and Bitmain, um, that, that, you know, run the game. And, and it's become a little more seamless to get machines. And, and, and it's really about having the relationships in place. Um, still your average Joe will have trouble sourcing, um, machines. We're seeing more 
supply constrained now than ever. But, um, you know, having those pre-built relationships that started, you know, several re- years ago, you know, kind of helped us um, become, you know, top sourcer of machines in North America. Yeah. And actually, you touched on a great point there. Some of the people I've been speaking with have been talking about that constraint just because of what's happening at the foundry and when they're actually trying to make these chips. Everything that happened with COVID has really shocked a lot of these supply chains. And what are some of the things that you're seeing from the sourcing equipment side of things? Are brokers still playing a massive role within the flow of equipment into the North American market? Or maybe just talk about some of the trends that you're seeing? No, yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, so for starts, you know, today we're seeing um, – financing come into play more than ever. And and we're seeing large institutions and, and public companies starting to buy up all the available ma- machines that, you know, prior, you know, the, the brokers would have a shot at, at acquiring. Um, so a, a manufacturer like Bitman or What's Miner um, controls the supply of, of machinery. And they do that um, very intelligently because for them, um, if you look at the, the value of a machine, the value of a machine is the future cash flow that it will earn for you. So a machine's uh, revenue is based off first the price of Bitcoin, second difficulty. So if, if the manufacturers are releasing too many machines into the market, it'll decrease their profitability. And if you you know reverse back the cash flow, it'll it'll reduce the price that they're able to sell machines. Um, so it's interesting in that the, thus the manufacturers are are only releasing a limited supply, and they're doing that very strategically. Um, Therefore, these large companies like Riot, like uh, Marathon, like um, Bitfarms, um, and, and a few other players are, are getting financing from, from banks and, and well-known institutions and buying up tens of thousands of the newest and latest and greatest machinery, making it impossible for retail um, buyers to acquire you know, the newest series of miners, which would be like the, the What's Miner M30S series or M31S or the Bitmain S19 series. Um, so then what we're seeing is a transition of all the brokers that um, used to be able to get that equipment very easily to now putting their time into the secondary market. Um, so the secondary market is a very fun and interesting space where you have people selling used equipment, right, or, or whatever they can get their hands on, whether it's infrastructure, you know, transformers, power supplies, PDUs, and then the used machinery, um, the less efficient and older equipment. Um, so we're seeing a, a transition of brokers um, selling in the secondary when they used to sell, you know, the premium equipment because no one could get a hold of anything. Um, with that being said, you know, Blockware and, and some of the more established brokers still do get allocations from Bitmain and What's Miner. And, you know, we kind of have a competitive advantage with, with Bitmain and these companies because we've been buying, you know, thousands of machines on you know, a monthly basis for the last two or three years. Um, these these Chinese companies do favor their largest clients, and you know that's just the game that we play here. Yeah, I see like two major manufacturers who are dominating the game. Uh, What's Miner and Bitmain. There are some other manufacturers out there, but their equipment might not necessarily be performing at the same level. Is that kind of one of the reasons why you're you're seeing that almost like this? this market where there are many manufacturers, but there are two that are really the only ones who are, who, who are putting out equipment that all the miners are trying to get. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes into a two part discussion. So, you know, in the Bitcoin mining game, um, you want to buy the machine that is the most efficient and the most technologically advanced. 
Um, and it's kind of a race between the manufacturers to come out with the latest and greatest machine, right? Um, we're seeing now um, this year, um, you know, at the beginning of the year, Bitmain released the, the 70 terahash model, which was a huge deal. Prior, you know, there's GS17, which was 50 terahash. There was the Anitilicon T3 um, at the beginning of the year. And now we're, you know, towards the second half of the year, and there's 110, 115 terahash machines that have been produced by Bitmain, what's minor. Um, and, and, you know, what you've seen in this space is those two companies have had, first, the access to the chips, which is the most important. Um, second, the access to the most quality chips, which is the second most important. And, and thirdly, you know, they have the resources and, and, and the, um, the vertical integration with um, distribution that they have a competitive edge over the, the tier two mine, you know, mining companies like in the Silicon, like eBay, um, like Canon, right? Um, those companies are still in the game. They just, they don't have a machinery that competes with Bitman and What's Miner. They, you know, their, their top machines may produce, you know, 60 to 80 terahash. Um, so that's why, you see in the Bitcoin mining game, um, you want the what's minor or Bitmain machines. Then there's a whole another ball game where you have altcoin miners. Um, you know, for example, I know Silicon's the leader in Ethereum um, mining um, at, with their A10 Pro series and they're releasing an A10 Pro. Um, you know, Bitmain had some older Ethereum miners and, you know, who knows? They may come out with a new one. Um, you know, Bitmain's a leader in Zcash mining with the Z15 that came out. Um, alt, altcoin mining is very interesting. I think if you want to be successful with altcoin mining, you really need to get the first batch of, of that new miner that was released so that you can be mining immediately. Um, you can chase your quick ROI and then you, you know, flip your machine, um, before it comes obsolete. Um, it, it's more of a, a, a gamble as, as opposed to Bitcoin mining, which is a long-term strategic play. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I mean, you, you probably have a really like inside look at what's happening with the pricing of all this equipment. So kind of to, to segment it out, you just laid out how these different manufacturers, they're going to have different levels of equipment in terms of how well they perform, how quick you can ROI on them. Many times when people talk about ASIC mining, they're referring to Bitcoin because that's just the standard. Uh, we're talking a lot in depth about Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin mining hardware. But then there's the whole other world of ASICs and altcoin mining. And you, I, I honestly haven't spoken with anyone in much depth about what that looks like from a hardware side in terms of like ROI versus the pricing on Bitcoin miners. Can you speak a little bit about how that looks? You mentioned that when you're altcoin mining, you might just try an ROI and then flip, whereas Bitcoin mining, it's more long-term play. Can you just kind of compare how those ROI times look and what those considerations are if you're choosing to mine with a Bitcoin ASIC or mine with an altcoin ASIC? Yeah, no problem. Um, I, I think that I appreciate you uh, circling back on that conversation point. Um, so the way I look at it, um, miners are the most bullish people on Bitcoin in, in the entire world. They're, they're investing billions of dollars um, to um, acquire energy contracts um, set up, you know, lean and mean data centers, um, or whether that's a container or an actual manufacturing site or, or warehouse, um, to buy this ASIC hardware. Um, the typical, you know, ROI on on a Bitcoin miner is, you know, can be anywhere from uh, 18 to 24 months. And and what miners are doing during that time frame is their dollar cost averaging Bitcoin. Um, so you can view mining as as truly the best way to dollar cost average Bitcoin. Um, the goal of a miner is to generate and produce Bitcoin at a lower price than it, it would be to acquire Bitcoin on a free market. 
Um, so it's, it's interesting if you look at um, Bitcoin's chart from 2018 to 2019, um, during horizontal and a, and a down period, if you're a hodler of Bitcoin, you either broke even or lost money. Miners during that period were generating revenue and profit and, you know, may have made 100 or 150 percent, um, you know, accumulating and trying to catch the next bull cycle. Um, for the altcoin miners, you know, it's a different story. Like I said, you're, you can chase a quicker ROI timeline, but timing is more important than anything. Um, Bitcoin mining is very cyclistic in that um, there's a halving every four years. Um, that's set by the monetary policy of the Bitcoin network, which is coded. Um, and it's very predictable. Um, investors and traders are, are fascinated with predictable markets. Um, so as a Bitcoin miner, right now is one of the best times to enter if you buy the latest and greatest equipment because you can expect to run your machine until the next halving. Um, with altcoin miners, you know, there's halvings that take place in the coins as well. You know, the Zcash halving is taking place in November. Um, so, you know, you want to take that into account. You're seeing, um, you know, as we call it, a puke of Zcash machinery prior to that halving um, of the less efficient Zcash ASIC equipment. Because um, for, for an altcoin miner, you know, I've, I've had experience in the past where I've ROI'd in two or three months by getting the, you know, the, the Bicol Giant B right when it came out that was mining Decred, you know, in January of 2018 during this whole uh, crypto gold mine bull rush. Um, you can have those opportunities. And not only can you ROI in the machine itself, um, but you'll notice machinery is perfectly positive positively correlated to the price of the underlying asset that it mines. So you can sell your machinery um, for potentially an equivalent gain that you made from mining itself. So the greatest, you know, trade and exit is I buy a machine, I mine it for four months, you know, let's say I was mining Decred and Decred increased the price from 50 to $300. I made all of what I mined in Decred over that three month period. And then I sold my machine for three times the amount I paid for. Um, those scenarios exist and there's, there's some incredible stories um, that I've, I've heard within the space of people capturing opportunity like that. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely want to be on the upside of that versus the guy on the other end of that deal who's fine. The <laughs> oh, you could lose. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, you could lose that same trade at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. So aside from that, one of the major pieces within mining, aside from the hardware is electricity cost. And I'm sure that, uh, that we could dive into depth on how that looks and how different miners are approaching getting the cheapest electricity. Uh, but from your perspective, what, what are you seeing companies doing when they're, when they're out there looking for the lowest cost electricity? I'm, I'm very curious to hear how you evaluate uh, electricity cost and, uh, and how you approach procurement of the cheapest electricity. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, we put, we put out some research in, um, in March, uh, right, right during COVID timeframe where we developed layers of, of where we thought the global, uh, miners, um, stood from an all in energy cost. Um, so we broke out the different energy in, in layers. Um, and, you know, it tells a story that, um, there's not as many people that have this one cent energy cost as you think. You know, if you have one cent energy, you truly have some of the cheapest energy in the entire world. Um, but more importantly, it's not about just chase, chasing the cheapest energy costs, right? Um, you need to have good climate, right? You want a cool climate because these machines produce a ton of heat. Um, so you, having, being in a cool climate gives you a competitive advantage because you, have, you can spend less, less money on operational expenditures, you know, cooling your miners. You know? Um, you know, I've heard stories of, of mining farms in Iceland that you know, just open up their garage if, as temperature control um, for short periods of time to get in a rush of cold air. 
Um, those could be myths or those could be true. Um, but, you know, or you could have a fan, you know, entering it from the outside, you know, it's cold air. There's air conditioning, right? Um, you also need um, excellent network redundancy. Um, so, you know, you need to have redundant internet, right? You, your machines are running 100% of the time. You know, hopefully if you have good machines, then all goes well. Um, there's there's third world countries where they don't have good, good internet. Um, there's some interesting things being developed with like SpaceX and, you know, satellite internet. Um, I haven't seen that come into play yet. Um, and then as well, you need good politics and regulations, right? Um, and that's very key. So if you look at, um, you know, what, what's happened in Washington, what happened in Plattsburgh, New York, um, in the States, what, what happens in China and Venezuela, um, there, there's, um, there's not good um, relationships with the politicians and government. Um, in, in those third world countries and, and even in countries of China, um, you know, you can have your mining farm and all your assets seized at any point. Um, so having that political security is very important. Um, so th the answer is it's not just a race to the cheapest energy. There's several factors that come into play. And in our opinion, the best place to mine in the world is the United States. Um, you have um, an excess of energy. You can find good climates and or you can, you know, if you're in Texas, you can do immersion system and immersion cooling where, you know, you don't have to worry about um, cooling your miners. And you can have you, you have very strong politics and regulations and, and redundant Internet. It's something we take for granted. Um, so having having those, you know, three to four key factors um, truly play to where you should mine. Um, and, and we think the United States is positioned um, to be the best place to mine in the world. Yeah, I mean, it is a really interesting topic to dive down where you're when you're choosing where to mine there are all these different variables that you're balancing and what variables are you giving a certain amount of risk to so for example people find it if you're mining in the US as very very safe as compared to mining in somewhere like China or somewhere like Russia or wherever else it may be but you might have cheaper electricity in that other location so you're kind of balancing that but one of the major things that at least from a lot of the discussions I've been having with uh, people in the industry is that within the US you really do have the opportunity to find some really cheap power I mean you might be looking at smaller pockets you might be trying to look at stranded power assets or whatever it may be but then you can have the benefit of a good climate regulatory uh, a regulatory environment that's favorable for mining and then uh, be able to run very efficient low-cost operations so it seems like a lot of that mining as you said is starting to move to the u.s and we're seeing capital groups actually come and try and look for projects in the u.s as well i couldn't agree more um i think um, the u.s um you know our, our part of our company's mission statement you know is we want to geographically decentralize mining you know the mining hub of the world is china um you know we're, we're we estimate that 65 percent of the global hash is based in china with that being said, that doesn't mean that Bitcoin's centralized. Um, 65 and a hash being there doesn't mean that one entity controls 65%. There's, you know, 100,000 miner, individual miners in, in, in some very large farms um, that, you know, we, we were in Chengdu last year. We saw, you know, a 300 megawatt facility. That's massive. Um, it'd probably be one of the largest in the States if it was here. Um, but that doesn't mean it's centralized in China, right? Um, we're trying to geographically decentralize mining and, and part of our mission statement is, is to bring hash to the United States. Um, and, and by doing that, you know, we're bringing awareness and, and we're, we're providing, you know, network security that is going to go a long way. Um, and we don't want to be lost in the dust and, and miss this race um, in, in, in Bitcoin mining um, 
you know, if, if we wait too long, we're, we're, we're not, we're never going to make it. So I think it's important for, for funds and, and institutions and, and even retail participants to, you know, take action now and, and join the cause and, and, and mine in the States. Um, and to your point, yeah, there's, there's incredible power opportunities. I mean, you look at Texas, um, there, there's that, that has some of the most and, and best excess energy and energy contracts in the world. Um, if you can figure out how cool and, and mine there, um, you can be very successful. Um, people have also, you know, target Washington state. Um, we see, um, people partnering with, you know, uh, steel mills. Um, we have a facility in Calvert City, Kentucky, where we partnered with a steel plant that has a lot of excess energy and actually owns the substation with the government of Tennessee dating back to the 1930s. You know, that's, that's, that's having a good electricity contract and good political, you know, regulation in place. What are some of those key aspects that, as a miner, if you're going into, uh, it seems like you guys kind of secured it with your place in Kentucky, but when you're trying to balance your regulatory approach while building a project in the state, how are you approaching those discussions? Are you looking at it where you see that you want to build a project there and you start reaching out to some of the people in government? Or is it something where that you just pop up on their radar and then when you're getting ready to fall through with a project, you start those discussions? Like how, how does that process look from the point of view of someone who's actually going and building up a mine in the state? Yeah, so um, it, you have to be very proactive. You know, first thing you know, identify is, is you know, cheap land, right? Miners are, are, are natively cheap. We, we look for the cheapest energy contracts, the cheapest land, and the minimum viable product in, in the warehouse or facility or wherever it is that we're, we're mining. Um, so you look for those things. But prior to doing that, you need to get a hold of the electricity company in the area and, and find out um, where your energy source is, you know, whether you're pulling from the grid or you have a direct relationship with an energy provider, right, like a wind farm or a hydro farm. Or, or like a coal, you know, plant, right? Um, most most miners in the states um, pull pull from the grid, and you know, it's a mix of different power sources. Um, so you need to have a good electricity contract, and you you need to make it long term. So when you're negotiating, you know, you want to have a five, ten, twenty year term on your electricity contract. It's fascinating. You'll find that miners hold some of the best energy contracts in the world. And oh, what's interesting <laughs> is it. Yeah, it's it's an asset that is can be so valuable, you know, in the event mining, you know, in eight years, um, you know, changes landscape and and the big players kind of take over and make it you know too competitive for for some of us to, to participate. Uh, you, you're holding a gold mine with like a two or three cent energy uh, all in energy rate KWH rate um, that you can repurpose. You know, you could build an AI data, data center. You could sell that energy contract to to Google. Um so that's you know something that's overlooked. Um, and then the next thing that you need to look out for is, of course, the political aspect of it. Um, there's people think that um, Bitcoin miners are wasting energy, and and they'll lobby against you. Um, there's towns that think that you're going to steal all their energy, and and anytime they have an outage in the region, it, oh, it's it's from that Bitcoin mining farm that's 20 miles down the way. Um, in fact, it's actually not true. Um, we find that. Bitcoin miners are actually, you know, helping um, the energy network. Um, there's, we're, we, we, there's, there's programs that are, you know, very advanced. They're called demand response programs, where um, during um, times when a city or an area um, needs excess energy, mining farms um, will sign agreements with power companies to turn off their farms during those those surcharge times um, and help reduce the retail energy costs. Um, 
the most typical time of that is during summer. You know, everyone's blasting their AC, especially during COVID, sitting on their couch and watching Netflix. Well, you're going to cause an, a, a power surge in, you know, New York City. Um, they're going to pull from um, large energy uh, consumers in the region to, to account for those surcharges. And, and, and therefore, those miners are actually saving your, your costs. Um, and the second part of that, of course, is a lot of miners are also using green energy, right? Um, so we, I, I think it gets a bad rep and a bad rap when it's in fact the opposite. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things in terms of like public narrative surrounding mining that I think was just very one-sided. I'm not sure how that narrative got started and it's really just stuck with everyone outside of like the mining community or outside of, I would say, crypto. But you look at the amount of benefits that are brought in from a mining company going into a certain community. I, I definitely think that mining has an enormous benefit when being brought to any sort of community, especially a lot of the communities where it's actually being brought to, because many times those are where you're going to find economic development zones, those types of incentives to build. And yeah, I, I couldn't agree more that there are many benefits that tend to be overlooked in in the public narrative surrounding mining. Yeah, you're spot on. That was you know, a couple of points I didn't address yet. You're employing you're providing tax dollars, um, providing towns like like where we're and us and core are located. You know, great jobs that are that are high pay. Um, they're learning and, and participating in something that's greater than themselves. Um, you know, Bitcoin enthusiasts, you know, have true belief in in the free market and and what they're what they're bringing to the table. Um, so I think it's you know it's fascinating and people are people are happy about it. So yeah, and uh, I want to get your view on where you think the industry's going right so right now i feel like every single like month that goes by there's new news there's things happening but on a on a scale of maybe like one to three years what do you think is going to be happening in the bitcoin space with the difficulty with the amount of capital coming into the space and overall just what the overall landscape is going to look like how many players are there going to be you know, I think so right now, you know, at current time and place, um, you know, we're wrapping up on China hydro season. Um, so I think, I think, you know, hash right now is, is very high. Um, I'm expecting some less efficient machines to turn off, you know, in the short term and, and, and things to balance out. Um, Bitcoin as a whole, you know, it's a checks and balance system, right? Um, the difficulty is, is driven by the total amount of net, um, new miners and new hash. Um, subtracted by the miners that turn off the network, which gives you the total net hash. Um, and just, just about every 14 days, you'll you'll see a new difficulty adjustment, and that's um, driven by um, blocks, right? And and typically there's 2,016 blocks um, between each um, difficulty cycle, and um, the difficulty adjustment will actually be based on um, the time it takes for miners to mine that block. So if if it's above 10 minutes um, to mine a block on average then the difficulty will increase. Um, if it's below, then the difficulty adjustment will decrease. Um, so that, you know, that's just education on what difficulty means. Um, that being said, you know, there's a ton of new miners that are going to hit the market. You know, we talked about these, these large public mining companies, and, and some of the largest miners are miners you don't know about, and they prefer to be private. Um, these, these type of companies are, you know, bought up, you know, all of the S19 and all the latest and greatest miners that are coming out and tens and thousands of those machines. Um, so those new machines will be coming online over the next, you know, 10 months. W when that happens, 
um, you'll see the less efficient miners and less efficient machines turn off, right? So there should be a checks and balance system. Um, with that being said, um, you know, our prediction is, you know, we're very bullish Bitcoin. Um, we do expect hash to continually increase. Um, but with that, um, if Bitcoin increases in price, then there, there's going to be a balance because, you know, miners will still be accumulating and achieving the profit and, and revenue streams that they would have, you know, at today's level um, with current difficulty in price um, with, with hash where it is. Um, and, you know, on a three-year outlook, I, I expect hash to continually rise as, as more um, large players enter the space. Um, you may see a shakeout of retail, um, you know, over the next, you know, three to eight years where it, it, you know, it becomes harder for retail to participate, right? They're not, they're not going to get the best energy prices. They may pay, you know, a little premium on machinery and, um, the, the largest players will have a competitive advantage, but you know, that's the glory of the Bitcoin, um, market. It's, it's a free market, right? If you do have the cheapest resources, if you do have access, um, to, to, uh, you know, the cheapest energy land and, and, and if you do have access to get machinery at lower costs because of the amount of capital you deploy, and then you should win. Um, that's 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 a free market. Yeah. And do you think? Well, I guess in that context, you you mentioned that retailers, the retail investors, might get shaken out. How are you defining retail from a capital standpoint? Like how much, how much capital, or I guess how little capital do you have to have to be considered retail, where you think you're not going to be able to mine anymore in the next three years? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I think, you know, I think of a retail miner as someone that, you know, purchases between, you know, one and, and, and 20 or 30 machines, right? Um, you know, with a, with a new, with the newest and latest greatest, greatest machinery costing, you know, anywhere from two to, uh, $3,500, 2000 to $3,500. Um, you'll, you'll see those individuals investing anywhere from, you know, 3,500 all the way up to, you know, under a hundred grand. And you might think that's a large number. But, you know, I assure you that, you know, I still consider that in the retail range. And then from there, you get into, you know, small miners, mid-sized miners, large miners, um, you know, and, and the scales from there go from people purchasing, you know, 30 to 100 machines, 100 to 500, 500 to 1,000, and then upwards. Um, but with that being said, um, you know, a part of our company um, position is that, you know, we'll, we'll take on a, a retail client, we'll, someone that wants to buy one machine. And, and, you know, requires a ton of education, um, requires a lot more time than, you know, someone that un gets the game and has, you know, wants to buy 50 machines. You know, we invest time and I spend, you know, most of my time and the rest of the block team um, does within, the, you know, educating individuals and helping them enter. Um, so company, you know, companies like us, we also provide them cheaper energy rates than they would usually get. Um, and that's that's a part of our motto and pitch. Uh, we don't want retail to get shaken out. I think it's important to have more participants in the network. With that being said, it may become more and more competitive where, you know, companies like us may not have the, the energy costs or, or the, um, the capability to, to assist retail in, in entering. So it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. That's a good segue into just talking about how we think like the capital, capital formation is going to continue to uh, transpire in, in this market. I mean, Right now, we're seeing a lot of groups that are looking to deploy capital here in North America. And you mentioned earlier, and I, I agree with this, that if you're a miner, you're as bullish as they come on the future of Bitcoin. And you are, you are in a sense, dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin. You're producing a certain amount of Bitcoin. Uh, 
continuously you're producing Bitcoin every single day and you're building up a reservoir of, of Bitcoin over time. I mean, where do you see mining going in the next three years in terms of the amount of capital coming into the space? I think there is a ton of capital that it will be entering mining over the next three years. And, and, it, and it's going to greatly outweigh, you know, all the capital that's been deployed, you know, to the, to today's weight, uh, today's date. Um, there's very reputable, um, institutions and, and hedge funds and, and bench and VC funds that are investing in mining. Um, you, you, you just saw that DCG spun off boundary, right? They're already giving loans to miners in, in, in the tens of millions of dollars. Um, so that they can expand and, and, you know, buy more infrastructure and buy more machinery. Um, we, I'm a managing partner in, in a fund called Blocker Mining Fund. Um, we, we actually, um, accrued the first of its kind loan where we, we actually, um, did a sale and lease back of equipment that we already owned, um, to get a loan to buy more equipment. So essentially we, we put up, you know, a thousand or 700 machines that we already owned. Um, as collateral against a loan um, with a company called Arctos. Uh, since then, you're starting to see um, DeFi come into play a big time um, within the financing game and, and these, these really, you know, well-capitalized um, funds and institutions come in and, and they're more willing to invest in the mining because they understand it now. You know, people are educated and people believe in Bitcoin. You know, you saw Paul Tudor Jones, you know, one of the greatest fund managers of all time. Um, allocate two percent of his his global assets into Bitcoin. You know that speaks for itself. Um, therefore, these these well-backed institutions are are like, oh, Paul Tudor Jones. Then I want to get into mining because mining is dollar cost averaging. It's a way to produce Bitcoin cheaper than it is to buy it on the free market. Um, so that and and you'll see the more reputable mining companies, um, you know, acquire these funds from these institutions. Um, it makes sense yeah. when you look at it from a macro perspective looking at how Bitcoin's an uncorrelated asset. I mean, I think that as more institutional investors get educated on, on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and how we could benefit their portfolio, I think that's going to be a huge catalyst for a lot more capital to come into the space. Yeah, and we missed out on Fidelity. Uh, it was five months ago. I saw uh, they listed like 10 Bitcoin mining specialist positions you know, all throughout the United States. Uh, where they're we're, they're hiring people to to research and analyze and and do who knows what within Bitcoin mining. Um, they'll be relatively private, um, but you know they're certainly in the space. Um, you see some you know other very large institutions like Fidelity that are taking more of a private entry into the space. Um, so I think you know indicators like that you know speak volumes, and and you you, you don't need you don't need me to sit here and tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, I mean. Overall, you're really on the front lines with everything that's being built. You are very, very involved, not only from an operational standpoint, but from a actual like brokering and ordering all this equipment. So my question here is, based on everything that you're seeing, everything that you've been exposed to, what's one piece of knowledge or one belief that you hold to be true right now that many people listening might not necessarily be aware of or uh, agree with at this point in time? My hot take is, is Bitcoin mining is here to stay. Um, my position is that um, we're, we're 
you know, at least for the next four-year cycle, um, I think it's an excellent time to enter. Uh, we, the having just took place, you have the opportunity to buy the, you know, the newest and most efficient machinery that just came out and, and run it for the next four years. Um, people get caught up in, in ROI and forecasting. Um, one thing that people miss in these ROI and forecasting is, is right now, in my opinion, you know, the, the profitability of these new machines, depending on your energy costs, is, is, is at a low. Um, when you're actually forecasting um, your mining revenue and profit, you should be taking the mean return over the period that you plan to run the miner. So if you're forecasting, you should um, forecast, you know, what you expect to return over the next four years. Um, with that, that becomes a very complex model, right? And, and you're going to have to guess um, and make educated guesses. So within that guess, you're going to have to speculate where Bitcoin price is going to be over that time frame. Um, you can run multiple scenarios, right? You know, let's say Bitcoin hits 50K in four years. That's great. You know, my mining will have been very successful. Um, what's also important is your strategy as a miner. Um, you can take several different strategies. Um, you can be a hodler where you will accumulate all of the coins that you mine and, and you don't sell off and you cover the electricity expense, expenses and the other expenses out of pocket with, you know, US dollar fiat. Um, therefore, you know, Let's say in year one, Bitcoin right now is at 10,500. All of the Bitcoin you mined in year one, if in, at year three or four, if Bitcoin's at 50,000, that same one Bitcoin you had in year one is not, is worth 50,000, um, you know, four years later that you accumulated. Um, so when forecasting, it's your strategy is, is extremely important. And then another thing that I see people miss when they're running these forecast, forecasts and ROI models is that the machinery and the assets that you have have an exit value. Um, so you can, you, you know, even the S9 that, that came out four years ago and is nearly obsolete to, to most people in the world still has a value. So you should take into account the value that your machine can potentially be sold for in four years and, and, and make that a part of your model. Um, so my belief is that people get caught up in ROI and forecasting way too much. Um, and, and they're not properly forecasting. Um, and th these are, you know, these are the many conversations I have on a daily basis with, you know, very smart individuals um, that I think they miss. So, you know, I'm, you know, I have a heavy conviction, conviction in Bitcoin mining. You know, I'll be here to stay. Um, and, and I think, you know, Bitcoin mining will survive, you know, for, for many years to come, even for the retail participants. I'd like to thank BlockFi for sponsoring today's episode. BlockFi provides wealth management products for crypto investors. I personally hold my crypto with BlockFi because they pay me up to 6.2% interest annually on all of my crypto holdings. At Saz Mining, we've hooked up all of our listeners with a special sign-up bonus. All you have to do is go to blockfi.com slash sasmining and sign up. Again, visit blockfi.com slash sasmining for an exclusive bonus offer. It's a no-brainer to earn additional interest with BlockFi. Today's episode is also made possible by Cogent Law Group, Finding reliable legal representation in blockchain is one of the biggest challenges when building a business. You need to make sure that you work with a law firm that understands the legal frameworks that apply to the industry and has the ability to strategically help you grow your business. When researching law firms for SAS Mining, I found that Cogent Law Group checked all of the boxes. Not only do their lawyers have expert level experience, but they also understand the blockchain industry. Cogent Law Group gives you access to high-end lawyers without breaking the bank. 
next part, which is not necessarily blockchain related. What is your favorite book? I got to go with the J.R.R. Tolkien Lord of the Rings series. Uh, read it, read all the books uh, several times um, as a kid, uh, watched all the movies several times. I, I just love it. There's so much messaging that, that resonates um, and can craft um, your beliefs. And, and it's just a great story. I, I like, you know, the, the fantasy and, and, and the idea of, of living in another world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those, how many books were there? Um, Cause I, I honestly, I haven't read any of the books, but I've watched the, the shorter form of the movies. Um, but I binge watched them all in like a very, very short period of time. No, that's a good question. I mean, when you factor in the Hobbit, I think there's a total of six books. Um, and with that, you know, they spun, they took the Hobbit and made like three movies out of it. Um, I think, I think they're making like an Amazon series that's coming out, um, which I'm super pumped about. But, um, you know, I think they're, I think they're great reads. And if you hadn't had a chance, get to it. Yeah. Yeah. I got to read about Frodo. <laughs> and his journey yeah <laughs> yeah it's gonna remind me of bitcoin <laughs> yeah <laughs> awesome well aside from favorite book what is your favorite movie i love all the oceans movies oh, i thought you were gonna say lord become... of the rings <laughs> just like no, the lord of the rings i'm guy. not that much of a loser i'm not that much of a loser bro. i'm not I was... <laughs> I, god i love the oceans movies man uh, danny ocean's like my yeah. idol um Gotta love the uh, the intelligent and and well polished criminal. Um, you know, throwing some some gambling. I'm a big card player. Uh, I think it, it crafts the perfect storm for the greatest movie series ever. I hope they make more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All those movies are interesting. Like, I mean, the oceans especially, yeah. but I think that any type of movie, like even like 21, I thought that that movie was really good. Those yeah. are interesting. So you're a big uh, a big card player. Yeah, I've I've played cards my whole life. Um, I thank my father who started teaching me how to play hold'em when I was like eight years old. Um, I grew up with three brothers, so we we had a lot of competition in my house, and and amongst my three brothers were all like seven and a half years apart. Um, so there was there was a lot of us in a short time frame, and and we competed in everything. So yeah. it, it it turned out to all into becoming pretty good card players and. I'm happy to be a Bitcoin and Bitcoin miner. Um, I think that's also, you know, has some sexy appeal to it. Just like, you know, being a poker professional does, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, you see in blockchain, like it, there, I, you see a lot of poker players and gamblers in blockchain naturally. Like some of the, you know, the, the biggest names that you know in the blockchain space, they all, they're all playing <laughs> these like online underground games for like, you know, God knows how much money, you know, <laughs> several Bitcoin on the line on a daily basis. Um, um, just like Bitcoin mining, right? Um, there's a luck yeah. factor in mining a block. <laughs> yeah, and this, this has been a lot of fun speaking through not only the crypto stuff, but everything on the uh, on the book recommendations, the the poker side especially. <laughs> so uh, really glad yeah. for that to have you on. Uh, before we sign off, is there any place online that everyone listening can go and connect with you or the company? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. This has been a great session. Um, it's always fun sharing about Bitcoin mining, you know, it's something that I'm sure we could sit here and talk about for 10 hours um, in, in the vast array of subjects. Um, but definitely go to our website, uh, blockwaresolutions.com. 
um, you, you'll find a contact us button there. If you if you're if you're looking for education, uh, if you're looking to get into mining, um, if you have any questions, we're always happy to help. Um, you'll you'll likely get a reply from me. Um, and definitely check out our research. We have a research and publication section. Um, we, we list all the podcasts and, and, and research that we've written. Um, it's just worthwhile and um, it's stuff that's been shared around the world. So we look, look forward to potentially meeting you. Definitely. Go check them out, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the SAS Mining Podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media and YouTube for the latest updates and previews of upcoming episodes. Full episodes and transcripts can be found on sasmining.com every Thursday. If you want to hear us interview a particular guest on a future episode, please reach out to us at podcast at sasmining.com.